Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. Well, as a church, we've been reading through the book of Genesis for the past month, and we've been talking about the family that God chose, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all of their wives, and their kids, and their crazy relatives, and all sorts of people. And if you've been reading along with us, maybe you've come to the same conclusion I have. These people were messed up. You notice that? They, they scheme, and they lie, and they backstab, and they sleep with people they shouldn't, and someone is always trying to kill somebody else. It's a really screwed up family. Uh, this week on uh, the Bible Savvy podcast, pa- Pastor Nikki actually uh, summed it up really well. She said, reading this book is like watching an episode of Days of Our Lives. It's just full of drama. Uh, I saw a Christmas sweater the other day that summed it up really well. You're all naughty. Like on, on Santa's list, they're all on the naughty list. And that's actually kind of the point. That's actually kind of the point in the book of Genesis. It's to show that even among the heroes, the people that God chose, there there is no one who is good. There really isn't a good guy among them. God is the only one who is good. He is the only one who can rescue and save. In a world where there are no good guys, where every single one of us is on the naughty list, that means inevitably we hurt one another. You see this all through Genesis, people hurting one another. This happens in even our closest relationships, maybe especially in our closest relationships. How do you survive in a world like that? How do you live in a world where we're always going to hurt each other? The the final story in the book of Genesis, I think, gives us an answer to that. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. If we're going to live in a world like this, we need to learn how to forgive. If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and open up to Genesis chapter 50. That's the last chapter in the first book of the Bible. Uh, We've been reading through Genesis as part of our Bible reading plan, Bible Savvy, and this entire year, one of our major goals is for every single one of us to spend time in God's Word every single day. This is one of the best things you can do to grow as a follower of Christ and as a person, Uh, and it's also uh, really difficult. The the reality is uh, you can understand God's Word, but you often need some help, and so as a church, we're trying to provide as many resources as we can to do that. Uh, One of the things we're doing is each time we begin a new book of the Old Testament, we are offering uh, a Bible-savvy workshop. About a month ago, we did one on Genesis. This week, we're actually doing another one. We added this unexpectedly at this time. Uh, We're doing it on the book of Psalms. So this Thursday, uh, we've got Dr. Aubrey Buster, who is an Old Testament professor at Wheaton College, and she is going to be giving a webinar on how to read the book of Psalms, because we read this on our, our weekend readings for Bible Savvy. And she gave this presentation to our staff a couple of weeks ago, and we thought it was so good, we invited her to share it with the entire church. So you can register for that at BibleSavvy.com. It's going to be really good. Now, let me give you the backstory on Genesis chapter 50. This is the final scene in the Joseph story. Now, Joseph's story covers about 14 chapters, and it is one of the most beautiful stories in all of the Bible. I encourage you to read it for yourself. But here's what you need to know to understand this particular scene. Joseph had 11 brothers, and his brothers ruined his life. They ruined his life. Uh, Joseph's father favored Joseph over the other brothers, and so his brothers were really resentful of him. And that hatred ended up bubbling over to the point where they attacked Joseph, they uh, faked his death, and then sold him into slavery in Egypt. When Joseph gets to Egypt, things go from bad to worse. First, he's a slave. Then he's falsely accused of a crime. Then he spends years in prison, and it gets pretty dark at that point. 
But then, in a miraculous turn of events that I can't really spell out here, Joseph is kind of discovered by the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he is exalted to the second highest place in the entire country. And in that position, he runs a really successful famine relief program. It provides food for tens or hundreds of thousands of people. And it's at this point that Joseph's brothers step back into the story. They show up begging for food in front of the brother they never thought they'd see again, only this time he's in charge. You thought your family Thanksgiving was awkward this year. At that time, Joseph chooses to spare his brothers. In fact, what he does is he invites the entire family to come move to Egypt with him to enjoy the privilege of being related to the second most powerful man in the country. But then, years later, their father dies. And it's at this point the brothers are thinking, okay, he was nice to us while dad was around, but now that dad's gone, this is when the hammer drops. And so let's pick it up in verse 15 of chapter 50. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs that they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of your servants, the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Let's thank God for speaking to us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. How did Joseph do it? How did he have the strength to actually forgive his brothers for what they did? Uh, Joseph actually mentions two truths that helped him forgive, and I think they're going to help us too. Here's the first one. Forgiveness becomes possible when we can say, you are in God's hands, not in mine. You are in God's hands, not in mine. Let's face it, we like revenge. Payback feels good. And if you don't believe me, I can prove it to you, okay? Finish this line for me. My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. It feels so good, right? When the bad guy finally gets what's coming to him, especially if the victim gets a great one-liner before they do him in. It's like, yeah, revenge, vengeance. It's satisfying. The, the appeal only increases if you're the one who has been wronged. You can imagine all the scenarios that Joseph has going through his head as his brothers show up in Egypt. They're literally bowing at his feet and he could do anything he wants with them. How many times have we dreamed of being in Joseph's shoes? You have an argument with someone. The entire next day, you're thinking of things you could have said or will say that'll put them in their place. Your slimy, dishonest coworker gets a promotion that you deserved and you imagine all the ways they're gonna fail spectacularly spectacularly and prove that you're the one who should have had it you get dumped and so you start daydreaming about the day when your ex comes crawling back begging you to take them back and you can just dish out the same rejection that they gave to you, you you've been wronged and payback sounds delicious but why it's sort of because there's a sense of justice isn't isn't it right it doesn't just sound good it almost sounds right and Joseph's brothers seem to know this. Look at, look at how they describe what they did. 
They describe their own action as all the wrongs we did to them, the sins and the wrongs that they committed, treating him, them so badly. Verse 18, they offer to become Joseph's slaves. Essentially, they're saying, you would be right. You would, it would be fitting if you did to us what we did to you and put us into slavery. And, and they're right, in a sense. When someone knowingly wrongs another person, there is justice in seeing that person punished. But if that's true, why is it in the Bible, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, it repeatedly says, do not get revenge or repay evil for evil? Because that is not our job. Look at what Joseph says in verse 19. He says to his brothers, do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Am I in the place of God? Joseph doesn't deny that his brothers should have been punished. But what he says is, that's not my job. God can handle that. And yet we try to do it all the time. Obviously, we're not, you know, wandering around as vigilantes in the middle of the night, you know, nabbing criminals like Batman or something like that. But when we've been wrong, we try to take the law into our own hands. We try to make other people pay. Sometimes we do this in big ways. I see this far too often in divorce situations. Your ex-spouse has wronged you, and so you try to make them pay, sometimes literally in the financial settlement, or you just make the, the, the court battle into a slugfest. Or you trash them to their, their friends and their family. Make sure that they know exactly what they did to you. Or you talk bad about them to your children so that they side with you instead of them. And you turn them against the other person. You make them pay. Sometimes it's in more daily, subtle, ordinary conflicts. You give your parents the cold shoulder. You, you give them the silent treatment. You trash talk uh, your, your, your coworker behind their back. You deliberately poke at your spouse's insecurities because you know exactly how they're going to react. All of this is form of punishment that we feel that we've got to give to people who've wronged us. But that's not our job. Sometimes I see this with my kids. There are times when they're playing together and one of them will you know, break a house rule and one of the other kids will start to kind of scold or even discipline the other kid. You know? and, and they're using a voice that sounds very familiar. On the good days, it's the voice of their mom, kind of you know, uh, kind but firm in talking about it. On the bad days, it's more like the voice of their dad, kind of frustrated and annoyed with the other person. But even when they use the kind voice, it never really goes well, does it? And the reason for that is they are not parents. They cannot give out a timeout. They cannot take away privileges. When they enforce the rules, they usually do it in a self-serving way. Sometimes they'll bend the rules or make up a rule for their own purposes. They're even harsher with each other than their parents would be with them. That's why I often talk to my kids and I say, you are not the parent, that's my job, let me take care of this. When we take it on ourselves to punish the people in our lives, we almost always do a bad job and we always make it worse. Can you think of any time in your life when getting revenge actually satisfied you or made things better? It turns out it's not actually like the movies. It's actually good news though that justice is God's job. Look at what Romans 12 says. It says, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. No, notice that Paul doesn't say, don't get revenge because God is too kind and loving to judge people. He says, don't get revenge because God will do that. He will take care of that. Now, why is that good news? It's because God is the only one who can shoulder the weight of vengeance. God is the only one who can repay evil without becoming evil himself. God is the only one who is never too harsh and never too lenient. You can trust God. 
When we take revenge, here's what we're saying. We're saying, God, I don't trust you to make sure that there's fairness in this situation. I think that you're going to let this person get away with hurting me, and so I need to take care of it. How do we actually unclench our hands and put someone into God's hands? We do it through prayer, deliberate prayer. We've got to be honest with God and say, God, I am angry. I am hurt. I want revenge here. But I am placing this person in your hands. Either bring them to justice or bring them to repentance. But either way, I'm going to trust you to make sure that they face the reality of what they've done. And that's the sort of prayer that you usually need to pray over and over again until uh, you settle that. How does that help us forgive? When you place someone in God's hands, what it does is it loosens your grip on that person. You no longer have to spend so much time and mental energy and emotional energy uh, worrying about that person because you know God's handling it. And God is going to make sure that they grapple with the reality of what they've done. Even when God brings someone to repentance, this is what repentance means. It means that someone with, uh, with their heart says, I was wrong, I hate that I've done this, and I deserve the consequences of my actions. I don't want them, but if I got them, it would be right. That's what repentance means. It means facing and owning your sin. And so when people repent, God forgives them. And so when God forgives someone, it opens you up to be able to forgive them too. The other thing that happens is when you put someone in God's hands, you remember how God has treated you. When you ask God to deal with someone else's sin, it reminds you how God has dealt with your sin. You remember what you deserve for what you've done, and you are humbled by how much you've been forgiven. And that softens you, and it enables you to forgive the other person who has wronged you. You know that they're in God's hands, God's just and merciful hands, not yours. Here's the second truth that Joseph mentions. Forgiveness becomes possible when we can say, I am in God's hands, not yours. I am in God's hands, not yours. Imagine what it would be like if you were confined to one room all day, every day for your entire life. Now, unfortunately, thanks to COVID, we can imagine that a little bit more realistically. But imagine your whole life was just between four walls. Whatever happened in that room would define your reality, right? If something went wrong in there, it would drive you crazy because you couldn't escape it. It would dominate your life. But what if your world got a little bit bigger? What if you're allowed to roam around the house or go out into the yard? Or what if you were handed the keys to a car with a full tank of gas? What, what happens in that room might still be wrong and you might still want to address it, but it no longer controls and dominates your experience anymore, does it? If you can move away from that. This is what happens when someone wrongs us. It can feel like our entire world. Like you're in that room, the room where you were publicly humiliated, the room where she cheated on you, the room where he screamed in your face. This room is all there is. And if that's the case, you will be dominated by it. That's where a lot of you are right now. You're being defined by what other people have done to you. You can't stop thinking about it. They're living rent-free in your head as the saying goes. You're still stuck in that little room with them. But what if I told you that room wasn't the entire world? Look at what Joseph says in verse 20. He says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Uh, Joseph has a choice of how he's going to tell the story of what happened to him. He can either say, my brothers hurt me, or he can say, God blessed me. Now, which of those stories does Joseph choose to tell? Both of them. 
both of them. And it's important to tell both stories. If you choose just the story, those people hurt me, that person hurt me, it may be true, but it's incomplete. And it will trap you in the room. You will be stuck with your anger and bitterness. It's a way of staying in the hands of that person even when they've stopped hurting you. On the other hand, you could choose to tell the story, God blessed me. And that may be true, but it's not the whole story. And it will leave you in denial. You'll be uh, smiling, putting on a happy face, talking about the goodness of God, but you will never deal with the impact of that person's actions. By themselves, neither of these stories will help you truly forgive. But when you can say, you hurt me, but I am not in your hands, I'm in God's hands, that changes everything. This is the perspective that Joseph had. There was no denying that his brother's abuse dramatically affected his life. But there was also no denying that God had used those very actions to put him into a place to save hundreds of thousands of lives, including God's chosen people. Now the question is, does God actually do that? Like, is that a normal thing for God? Does he work uh, and use the evil actions of people? There are so many mysteries wrapped up into that question, but the simple answer is yes, he does. God is sovereign. He's in control. He, he works in all circumstances, not just in spite of human evil, but he actually uses human evil to accomplish his own purposes and plans. How do we know that? Because of the cross, because of Jesus. When Jesus was betrayed by, the, by one of his best friends, when the mob cried out to crucify him, when the religious leaders put on a sham trial, when the political leaders sold him out to appease the crowd, Jesus could have gone to every one of those people and said, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Now, that doesn't mean Judas and Pilate's actions were any less evil. It just means that God's plan encompasses and supersedes and co-ops human evil decisions. Now, the more you think about that, the more paradoxes and questions it's going to generate, and that's okay. We're brushing up on the edges of things that are beyond our understanding. But here's what we can know for sure. No human being has the power to upend God's plan or invalidate his love. Let me say that again. No human being has the power to upend God's plan or invalidate his love. That is good news. When we are wronged by someone, it is natural for that to become the story of our lives. Because they did this to me, I am damaged goods. I will never be free from my pain. I have no hope. I am unlovable. And when that's your story, you tell yourself, unless I get payback, I will always be their victim. But friends, let me tell you a truer story. You are in God's hands, not theirs. God gets to say who you are, not them. God is writing your future, not them. God declares your value and your worth, not them. They do not have the power to ruin your life. And because of Jesus, we know the bigger story that God is writing. It's the story of how brokenness grows into wholeness, where death is overcome by life, where the powerless are seated in heavenly places to rule with Christ. We are in his hands, not the hands of the people who hurt us. Now, when you can say this, when you can say, you are in God's hands and I am in God's hands, it is much easier for us to say, so I can forgive you. I can forgive you. But what exactly does forgiveness mean? What does it mean to forgive? It turns out it's a multifaceted idea. It's not just one thing. It's the reason why a lot of people misunderstand it. I find it helpful to think of it as having kind of three major parts. The, the first, when you forgive, you, the first part is rejecting payback. You reject payback. This is what we've been talking about. The root idea of forgiveness is that you recognize someone has wronged you, 
But you say to others what God said to you, I will not give you what you deserve. The second aspect of forgiveness is when you release resentment. This is when you work through the feelings, the subjective side, the the bitterness and the anger that you have towards that other person. When you reject payback, it frees them, but when you release resentment, it frees you. Nelson Mandela spent 27 years in prison for opposing apartheid, and when he uh, was released, this is what he said. He said, as I walked out the door toward the gate that would lead to my freedom, I knew if I didn't leave my bitterness and hatred behind, I'd still be in prison. I'd still be in prison. Now, as you can imagine, this is a process. In everyday acts of forgiveness, it might not be a very long process. You get in a a fight with someone, you resolve that. It might take an hour or a day to kind of cool down. But with more serious things, infidelity and abuse and betrayal, it can take months, years, a long time. And it's okay if it takes time. It doesn't mean that you'll never think about what happened to you. It doesn't mean that you won't feel sorrow or pain for that. But what it means is this, is when you get to that place, when it comes into your mind, you will no longer feel that that burning hate and anger and bitterness towards that person. You will have let that go. How do you work through that process of releasing your resentment? Again, it takes a lot of prayer. It takes a lot of prayer. In just a few minutes, we're gonna go through a prayer exercise that you can actually use kind of in your personal times of prayer to help work through your anger and resentment. It also usually involves talking with someone about this. And I don't just mean gossiping about what someone did or trashing on someone. I'm talking about going intentionally to a trusted friend or a mentor or a counselor and working through those feelings of resentment. If you don't know who to talk to about situations like this, our care ministry would love to help you with that. We'd love to get you in touch with a a, a care night group or a counselor that we can recommend uh, to give you someone to talk through with this. It might also mean uh, talking to one of our elders and having them uh, talk about the situation and pray with you about it. Actually, today, if you're working through something, we would love to have someone pray for you. Uh, Even today, you can text the number on the screen and a member of our prayer team, uh, a pastor or an elder will get in touch with you and we'll pray about whatever's going on in your life. It helps to have people walking alongside you as you go through the process of releasing resentment. The, The third aspect of forgiveness is when you restore interaction. You restore healthy interaction. Uh, Sometimes this aspect is called reconciliation, reconciliation. And this is the hope of the gospel. When God forgives us, after that relationship was breached, when he forgives us, we can be in a relationship with him again. And in turn, when we forgive our enemies, a a miracle can happen. Those relationships can actually be healed and restored. That's the ultimate goal. But this isn't always a straightforward thing. Uh, For one thing, the relationship rarely goes back to the way it was before. Sometimes it's a really good thing. Even in just kind of ordinary conflicts, not major life-changing things, this is what happens. Uh, Couples, when they fight, and healthy couples fight, what what they do is when they've resolved the conflict, their relationship shifts subtly. They talk to each other differently. They, They interact with each other differently. This is how we grow and change in our relationships. But in more serious situations, this is even more important. It doesn't go back to the status quo. If you have been cheating on your spouse, you've been caught using porn, and you are confronted about it, even if someone is willing to forgive you, that doesn't mean it just goes back to how things were. There will be changes. You're going to have to relearn how to relate to each other. There's going to be new boundaries. It will take time for trust to be rebuilt. I've talked with lots of husbands and fathers who know that they've messed things up with their families. And they've come and they've, they've repented and their, their families are willing to work on it, but there's still distance. 
Their, their family needs to have conversations to process it. There are feelings that they need to work through. And these men feel frustrated and impatient that things didn't go back. They say, they say I, I was wrong. I know. I've said sorry. I, I know that I've changed. God's working in me. Why isn't that enough for them? But the truth is, restoring healthy interaction is not flipping a switch. It doesn't just return to how it was before. And people who push too hard on that process often sabotage and undermine it. Now, when a relationship is restored, the, the new boundaries that get established are really important. You can reject payback, you can release resentment, but forgiveness doesn't mean you have to trust the person in the same way you did before. If your child is persistently disobedient, if you are being bullied by another student at school, if you have an alcoholic family member, if you are married to a gambler or an impulsive spender, you will need boundaries. Boundaries aren't just sort of requests, like, hey, would you, would you do things differently? They are firm lines that limit the destructive impact on other people's actions on your life. Boundaries are another way of saying, I am in God's hands, not yours. And so that's why I refuse to put my mental health or my financial health or my physical safety into your hands anymore. There are sometimes, in some situations, when healthy interaction does not mean having a close relationship. This is especially true in situations of abuse. So let me say this really, really clearly. If you are in an abusive situation, God is not calling you to stay there. That is not what forgiveness means. You can get out, you can get help, you are not stuck there. If you are in an unsafe situation, I wanna plead with you, please ask for help. Call the police, talk to a school counselor, call up the church, pull aside a pastor and say, I need some help, but please talk to someone. Sometimes the only healthy interaction we can have with someone is from a safe distance. In the cases though, where healthy interaction can be restored, it's important to know that it can only happen if there is initiation on both sides, where, where there's a response of both parties. If someone is not repentant for something they've done, there's only so far you can go in the process of forgiveness. Uh, on that triangle there, you can work on releasing resentment even without that person, you can deal with your feelings. But the other two aspects, you, you need some participation, especially restoring the relationship with the other person. It's sort of like electricity. The other day, my daughter Lydia, six years old, is wandering around the house and she's asking how different machines work. So she's like, well, how does this clock work? How does this mechanical pencil work? How does the toaster work? She's just being really curious. And at one point she sees an outlet and she says, why does the electricity stay in the outlet when nothing's plugged into it? Like, That's a really good question. She's like, why does it just come flying out? It's in there, right? Well, the reality is electricity doesn't flow unless there's a completed circuit. The, the electrons are there, the energy is there, it can move, but it doesn't happen unless the connection is made. Same thing is true with forgiveness. You can be willing to forgive, you can be willing to rebuild the relationship, but until someone repents, until they ask for forgiveness, it's only potential energy there. So how does that connection get made? It requires a courageous conversation. Again, there are a lot of situations where uh, it's not a safe option, but for most of us, there are relationships that have been broken and we need to have the courage to do something risky, to say to that person, I wanna to talk to you about what you did. It hurt me, it was wrong, but I wanna figure this out. Or if you know that you're the person who's done wrong, you need to go to someone and say, I know what I did. I'm sorry, I was wrong, will you forgive me? It's in the humility of those moments that the circuit comes together and things start to move. I think about Daryl Strawberry, our guest for Inspiring Stories back in October. 
uh, Daryl told the story of his early life, his relationship with his dad. And he talked about how his dad was very abusive physically and verbally. And as a young man, he cut his dad out of his life. He didn't talk with him. Now, as a result of some of that, Daryl's life went south. He got involved in drugs and all sorts of other things that were really self-destructive. But in the middle of his story, Jesus intersected Daryl's life. And he came to know the power of Jesus' forgiveness in his own life, and it transformed him. And then Daryl began to talk with other people about Jesus. And at one point, he he told us this story. He didn't actually share this in the interview we did with him. He actually shared this afterward. He said, "Uh, one time I was going to a conference at a church, and I was going there to tell my story, and along the way, I had some time before the conference began, I was driving there, and I realized I wasn't that far from the town where my father lived. And he had heard that his father was in the hospital, dying. And he felt, as he was driving there, the Spirit of God say to him, you need to go and talk with your father. And so he did the courageous thing. He detoured and he actually went and visited his dad in the hospital. And he said, dad, there are some things that I need to apologize for. And there are some things I want to offer my forgiveness to you for. And he said, it felt like the presence of God came into that hospital room. And the two of them broke down weeping after years, years of a broken relationship. And then and there, they forgave each other. The the even more amazing thing is because of that, Daryl got to say to his dad, dad, I want to tell you what Jesus has done in my life. And he got to share the gospel with his dad right then and there. And his father surrendered his life to Jesus right there before he died because Daryl was willing to say, I want to offer forgiveness and ask for forgiveness. There is power. There is power in forgiveness. Here's how I want to end this. I want us to take a moment before we celebrate communion together to pray for the people who have hurt us people in our lives that we need to forgive. And to do that, I'm gonna simply walk us through the truths we've just talked about. And I want you to ask God to bring someone to your mind that you need to forgive, someone that you've been bitter towards, someone who's hurt you. It might be for something big, it might be for something simple. But either way, I want you to bring a specific person to mind. And I'm gonna put three statements on the screen. And as we pray, I want you to put that person's name in the blank. And so I'll read the statements. After each one, I'm going to pause and give us a moment to pray about that. Start with this. Think of the person and say to God, they are in your hands, God, not mine. They are in your hands, not mine. Release that person to God. Say, I want you to deal with this. They have wronged me, but I put them in your hands. Now say to God, God, I am in your hands, not in theirs. I am in your hands, not theirs. And take a moment to offer yourself into God's hands, to trust him with your life, to let him tell your story.
And now say what is true. Forgiveness is possible. You may not feel that, but I want you to affirm it to God. And I want you to ask him to help you forgive. Forgiveness is possible. Heavenly Father, we need you by the power of your spirit to make us able to forgive. God, we're thankful that you hold all of us in your hands, that you are the one who upholds justice and extends mercy. God, we thank you that you have been merciful to us, that you have forgiven us. God, we pray that you would make us people who are able to forgive others the way you've done that for us in the person of your son. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.